This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or Chaos is made possible with the support of Quakers Aotearoa. You'll find them online at quaker.org.nz. Good morning, friends. Good morning, Craig. Today, Good morning. Today we have Craig Rooney, who is an an economist and the director of policy at the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcasts and then going to Community or Chaos. Well, it's really good to have you with us, Craig. Thank you for having me on. How, what prompted you to take up a position as an economic advisor to CTU, Trade Unions? Oh, um so a um, uh, um, little bit about my history, Marvin. Um, I'm the son of a coal miner um, from the northeast of England. Um, so from a tiny little coal mining village um, called Northumberland, called Cramlington in Northumberland. Um, and um, my uh, very early childhood um, was the coal miner strike, the great coal miner strike of the yeah, early I remember 80s. that. Um, and my lived experience um, of that strike and its aftermath um, was two things. One of which was the positive impact that trade unions had on that community um, and the positive impact that it had on helping to maintain families and look after families who were on strike. And two um, was the impact that economic uh, uh, closure and economic change had on that community. To some extent, Cramlington's never recovered um, and the areas have never recovered from the closure of coal mines in those areas. Um, so. Why do I join? Why do I join the CTU from being the Minister of Finance as advisor? The answer is really simple. Um, I've always been an enormous believer in the positive power that trade unions can have, and the positive role that they can play, um, and in the role of uh, of someone in, in the position that I have of being able to help the public debate understand that there are alternatives to the economic orthodoxies that are foisted upon us. That there are alternatives. So those things about, you know, we, we must have austerity. We must have tax cuts. Actually, there are plenty of choices that are in front of us. And hopefully I can play a little role in helping to inform that debate and helping people make better decisions um, in New Zealand. That's great. Glad to have you on board. We need more people like you. Well, in your opinion, in recent years, has New Zealand government collected enough revenue 
or income to sustain its social infrastructure, such as public health and education, and resilient physical infrastructure, such as transport, flood control, energy, and other community needs. But there's, there's, there's two answers to that question, Marvin, and, and both of which are sadly um, no. Um, so the first answer is, have we collected enough revenue? Um, New Zealand collects around 30% of GDP. Um, in terms of the what we call the net core crown revenue, which is taxation. Um, if we were to go to other comparable countries, um, that would be around 40%. And if we go to countries that, that we sort of look at and we want to look like, if we look at Denmark or one Sweden or elsewhere, it would be even higher. Um, and so every year, we've systematically under-collected taxation or revenue um, in New Zealand in comparison to those countries where, which we often you know, compare ourselves to. Um, and the key challenge there um, is that not only does that then flow into underinvestment and chronic underinvestment in public services, in infrastructure, in housing, in a range of other areas, where we collect taxation is also a problem because we over-collect income taxation, but we we don't collect at all capital taxation in any meaningful way. And so as a consequence, we exacerbate the income and capital inequalities that we have in New Zealand through our income, through our taxation system. So have we collected enough taxation? No. And the simple, uh, the simple best uh, um, example I can give you that in New Zealand right now is according to the Infrastructure Commission, we have a $210 billion infrastructure gap. So that's infrastructure that should exist, but doesn't. Or infrastructure where we need money for that infrastructure to exist, and we don't have it. And that gets reflected in not having enough hospitals, not having enough schools, not having enough state housing, not having enough, not making sure that our roading network or our public transport network is delivering for what New Zealanders not only need, but what a decent society should be delivering. And, you know, when you've got that sort of gap, two thirds of GDP, it's quite clear that you've both underinvested um, in the public sector and in the economy, but you've also undercollected the taxation that's necessary to deliver that. Okay, what are the various forms of taxation or revenue gathering that are possible? Just so, I mean, the, the 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 world of revenue taxation, and we and we could talk about this for the next fifteen hours, Marvin. Because um, trust me, there is an f- absolute field of revenue taxation that's not, you know, n- not really looked at in New Zealand. We've got a very vanilla, very what what the um, the tax system calls broad based low rate um, taxation system, which operates largely in the background. Um, now, there are sources of revenue like income tax, like corporation tax, and um, there are sources of revenue like GST, um, and we collect those in New Zealand, and we've got frankly very efficient systems for collecting those. Whether we've got the levels right in those areas is a different matter, but that's a different story. What we haven't done is, um, for historical reasons, is collect uh, a taxation on capital. Now, that may well be in the form of uh, rising asset values um, or in the form of uh, wealth or in the form of land. Um, and so what we what we historically have done is over-rely upon um, those Sources of sources of taxation that um, we've collected, be that um, uh, wage taxation or, or GST taxation, um, 
and we haven't collected um, uh, sources of revenue from wealth taxation or from capital taxation. Finally, um, we've only just really tinkered um, with what um, us professional economists need to be able to afford their suits. So we create fancy terms. And one of those fancy terms is Pugovian taxation, um, or what's sometimes called polluter pays taxation. And that's where you've got taxation, which is linked directly to the production of something that we consider to be bad. Now, um, we have experience of that in New Zealand with things like tobacco um, taxation or alcohol taxation. We've actually encouraged. Yeah. We've encouraged um, gambling so we can get more taxes from people often who have the least to give. But our ability to tax, um, in particular, pollution, um, be that in the form of carbon, be that in the form of nitrogen, be that in the form of um, excessive water use um, or, or, or other forms of, uh, of pollution, they're, they're very underexplored in New Zealand in comparison to options that are available and have been looked at overseas. These are all political decisions, aren't they? Uh, taxation is fundamentally and always a political decision. There are things that you can do from economics that help you understand whether or not uh, one form of taxation or another form of taxation is more likely to be efficient or whether it's likely to have uh, uh, um, side effects or other things. But fundamentally, you're taking money from someone for a thing. And so that's always a political choice. What's the difference between progressive taxation and regressive taxation? So progressive taxation is just simply um, the taxation systems that are designed around the principle of the more that the person can afford to pay, the more that they pay. Regressive taxation systems are those taxation systems that are either leveled as a flat rate, so therefore those with very low incomes end up paying the same as those with very high incomes, or bizarrely, taxation systems where those with the very, very lowest incomes pay more tax than those with higher incomes. Now, fortunately, those that last example of that is vanishingly rare in New Zealand, um, but um, we have lots of examples of regressive taxation systems based upon uh, um, some people's, not people's ability to pay, but simply everyone being levied the same charge. And if you earn a million dollars a year and you have to pay a thousand dollars a year in tax, or if you earn $50,000 a year and you've got to pay a thousand dollars in tax, that has very different impacts on your overall uh, um, income and your overall quality of life. When somebody earns a million dollars a year, say, they're not going to buy a million dollars worth of food. Well, they might not even spend most of that. They might invest it. And so they wouldn't be paying much tax on it, especially since we don't uh, tax capital gains. And that's exactly right. If you're poor, you spend every cent on your rent and on your food and other essentials, and you pay GST on all of it. And it, uh, my mum always used to say um, that it costs a lot of money to be poor. Um, and there's, you know, you're not wrong. Um, if you're paying um, income tax and you're paying uh, income tax on every cent of income tax earned, whereas if you're um, uh, fabulously wealthy um, and have established various company and other structures to minimize your tax liabilities, um, then you're likely to pay on a net basis far less as a percentage of your income than someone um, on, a, on a very low or moderate income, even quite high income earners, um, will pay you know, a lot, lot more as, as a percentage 
of their income. Now, you raise an interesting point about GST, um, because for those who um, spend their income on on you know on maintaining the roof over their head, on on you know on buying food to put on the table, and that's all that they that they they have the income for, they're paying GST on everything. Um, and so that takes more of their income than those who have lots of spare income and they're not paying any GST and any consumption. Um, the challenge there is how we divide, how we devise a better system. And the, the, the honest answer is there's no perfect system for GST. There are lots of countries that have uh, exemptions and carve outs for particular forms of goods or services. So fresh fruit and vegetables is often the thing that's highlighted. And in New Zealand, that shouldn't have uh, um, uh, um, uh, GST on it. But I, I come from a country, the UK, where which has that exemption, um, and it becomes a mess of um, of, of tax law. We we had a court case went to the High Court in in, in London um, uh, about whether or not Jaffa cakes were cakes or biscuits for the purpose of GST. I spent two years in court working out whether or not a cake, where Jaffa cake was a cake or a biscuit. Would it be simpler if you just said all food was free from GST? Because then it's a case of what is food. Because okay. then, So to give you a real world example in the UK, um, if I buy a pet in the UK, a cat or a dog collects VAT. So I go to the pet shop and I want to buy a cat or a dog or a guinea pig or something else that collects GST. But if I buy a rabbit that doesn't collect GST because a rabbit is food. Okay. Would you, if you had the choice, get rid of GST and add capital gains instead? Uh, well, one of the things I would do is look at the incidence of taxation right across the system. So one of the things you could do is, is, call, is what's being called a tax switch which is where you say, okay, we're going to collect more tax in one area because we, we under-collect it right now or because it's more progressive to collect it. So a capital gains tax would be a great example of that. Um, and we use that to reduce the incidence of tax for where people don't have the ability to pay or people don't have the ability to leave the system. GST is one area. The other example that's often used is having what we call an income tax-free area or an income tax-free zone. And that's common around the world. Australia has an income tax-free zone. The UK has an income tax-free tax zone. And there's what you want to do is make sure that whatever taxation system you have is as progressive and as simple as it can be. People say that we can't do it because we're so poor. But I wonder, I think of, I don't think of Norway. They got oil. I don't think of Sweden necessarily. But do you think of Finland? They've got trees, basically, and they've got imagination and a good education system, but they don't have anything else except location, location they do have. But uh, as far as resources, they don't have any more resources than we do. No, yeah, and New Zealand, is a, New Zealand is a fabulously wealthy country. Um, you know, let's not pretend that New Zealand is a poor country. New Zealand is a wealthy, advanced, democratic economy. Um, you know, we we produce uh, you know somewhere in the order of three hundred and fifty billion dollars of GDP per year. Um, it should not be beyond our ability um, to collect the level of taxation so that we can deliver the goods and services that deliver a good life for New Zealanders. 
Um, we, it, it's not it's not a trade off between growing the economy um, uh, and, and tax. Um, it's a trade off between under investing and not getting the economy that we need in the future. That's the real trade off. Would you have a a strong carbon tax if you had your way? Well, we have a, we have an ETS system. Um, and whether or not it's collecting or delivering the outcomes that we want is is is, is a great question. Um, the last two ETS auction rounds. Um, so every 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 couple of months, the government has an auction round, and um, for carbon credits, where it, it gets companies or people have to buy carbon to bid in. And for the last two auction rounds, no one's bought the carbon credits. And so there's a real question right now about whether or not what we're doing is we're relying too much on uh, on deferring or offsetting our carbon choices, and that's what the ETS delivers and drives, as opposed to genuinely reducing our carbon output. Um, and that's possibly one of the things that we should be looking at our taxation system and saying, how do we deliver that? And then importantly, some of our biggest sources of carbon or, or greenhouse gas emissions aren't inside that system. So natural methane isn't inside that system. So lots of farmers and 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 uh, and dairy outputs aren't inside that system. So you know it, it's a very incomplete taxation system. Okay. Have you are you familiar with our history since the uh, late uh, 20th century? Um, well, I'm, I moved to New Zealand, Marvin, um, 12 years ago. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to take a guess, and, I'm happy, and I know more, lots of things about the time, but sort of, you know, um, uh, I, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert in the field. Would you think the changes that we made in the, 18, I mean, the 1980s and the 1990s have been good for New Zealand and good for the New Zealand people, the economic changes? For instance, flat, flattening uh, income tax and putting in GST to make up for it would be one thing. The other thing was privatizing most of our industry and mm -hmm. also narrowing our industry, narrowing the choices of what we made in New Zealand. How well, does that work for us? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's, it's at best been a mixed bag. Um, and certainly one of the things that we've seen since the early 80s it has been um, an explosion in inequalities um, in, in New Zealand. But this isn't just something that's happened to New Zealand. This is something that's happened around the world. Um, so, you know, um, again, as economists, in order to afford our fancy suits, um, we give things fancy terms. And one of the terms we talk about is a thing called the Laffer curve. Um, and the Laffer curve is just simply um, a line on a chart. And if you can imagine... Um, uh, 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 the level of taxation between zero and a hundred. That's your that's your level of taxation. You can choose to tax everything or tax nothing. And if the government taxed everything, nobody would do anything, so it would collect no tax. If the government collected zero tax, then it wouldn't have any income. But there's a curve between those two points. And the theory at this point in time was that um, there was an optimal point for that taxation. And that was lower than where we are or were at that point in time. And so we had this experiment, not only in New Zealand, but in the US, the UK, Australia, lots of other countries, where we systematically lowered taxation levels in the hope 
that it would somehow bring more revenue into treasuries. How could we? Course, how could we believe that? I mean, I'm no economist. I've never been to university, but I knew in 1986 we were heading for inequality. Um, well, it was a it was a very seductive idea for politicians. You can not only tax less, you can get more money, um, and so that became the sort of the standard, um, you know, um, uh, um, sort of mantra. And at the time, was that we could reduce taxation, we could reduce regulation, we could open up markets, we could become much more um, laissez-faire, to use the phrase in economics, to be to to do nothing, and as a consequence, we would let the natural dynamism, as it's called, of the free market take over and deliver um, not only the good jobs, but the good incomes, um, and become a much more resilient... But we've um, become a low-income nation. Yeah. Now, the challenge is, of course, um, is that we have grown, undoubtedly. The economy has grown since the 1980s. But the challenge is, is that increasingly the rewards from that growth have gone to fewer and fewer and fewer people. Were you um, surprised at the Inland Revenue Survey that found that uh, the wealthiest families in New Zealand pay less than half the tax that the ordinary Kiwis pay. I think and that, we... You know, yeah. they paid 9% compared to 20%. So I think I think we all suspected that this was true, but we were a bit surprised by the scale um, of the difference. Um, the piece of research you're quoting, which is the Inland Revenues um, a High Net Wealth Tax um, uh, Investigation, um, is a fantastic piece of work. Um, and one of the things that it, it proved, you know, very... And conclusively, um, is that very high net wealth individuals, the 311 indiv uh, households investigated um, as part of this work, um, were paying very low levels of general um, taxation. Um, and so, you know, um, as those rewards from the 1980s have become uh, um, increasingly going to fewer and fewer people, if they're paying less and less tax, that relies upon if you want to keep the same levels of goods and services, more and more taxation from you or from somebody else who isn't one of those high net wealth individuals, or we accept a poorer and slightly more miserable public realm. And to be frank, what we've done is a bit of, a little from column A and a little from column B. We've accepted we, we've mm -hmm. collected taxes like GST, which are in essence regressive, and we've underinvested in the public realm. And that's how we've sort of muddled through. Is this now, does that why people off? are on cancer waiting lists and uh, hip replacement waiting lists? Is this why the health system's underfunded? Well, when 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 the, when the, when, the, when the government in 2017 came to office, um, one of the things that it asked the Ministry of Health to do was to say what was the level of um, capital need, i.e., what were the hospitals that needed to be built, you know? And it discovered there was a 15 billion dollar backlog in just health capital need, just for the buildings. And part of what explains those waiting lists and part of what explains those challenges in the health system right now is we've underinvested for way too long in the health system and built those backlogs. Yet according to this survey, uh, a small number of very wealthy, powerful people benefit greatly from these changes. Um, and by definition, you know, it... If you if, if the, 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 the reductions in very high marginal tax rates for um, very high income earners and uh, added to no capital gains taxations has meant that they have received very much the vast majority of the gains in economic growth 
since we made those changes in the 1980s. Okay, I'm going to play a piece of music now. Yeah. 
Well, that was uh, Darren Watson, Too Many Millionaires. We're talking with uh, Craig Rennie, the economic advisor and director of policy for the New Zealand Council of Trade Unions. And you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to podcast and going to community or chaos. Does New Zealand need major changes in tax reform? And if so, why have both major parties indicated that they will not be bringing major tax reform? Or one party has actually said they will lower taxes to the benefit of the top end of the tax bracket. Well, I think it depends on your objectives, right? So do you want to reduce, do you want to continue the levels of inequality that we've got in New Zealand? Do you want to collect the levels of revenue that we think we need in order to deliver the health service and the education service and the police services and other things that we, we want to have? If you do, then we do need major taxation reform. Um, and if you think that, you know, how are we going to achieve that, then we need a good place to start. And um, we'll be looking at the future of what the, the tax working groups report of 2018 and 2019, um, which recommended the delivery of a capital gains tax. Um, you could look um, at a range of other, um, you know, uh, other reports during this period of time. But one of the things you could look at, for example, is um, where um, is the incidence of taxation falling? Um, you know, who pays the tax um, in New Zealand? As you said, IRD has just produced a report saying it's not high net wealth individuals who are paying that the taxation. And so major taxation reform is necessary because you're going to need new sources of revenue if we're going to find the money to pay for the schools and the hospitals that we want. Um, and we're going to need to find new ways of collecting that um, because we can't simply and keep falling on those who already pay the tax right now. But what we have to recognize is that we undercollect tax generally in New Zealand. And we need to be moving towards um, a level of collection and expenditure, which is comparable to those countries that we want to look at, want to look like, sorry. Isn't um, lower services and lower taxes, uh, isn't that a sort of a a dead wheel of fortune. My yeah. sister and I were talking about, she knew somebody that had a small fish business in America. And she was saying why he didn't pay taxes. And she said that uh, they didn't get good police protection where they were. They sent their kids to Catholic schools. They weren't, not because they were Catholic, because the school system and been underfunded so much that it didn't wasn't able to deliver, and so they didn't feel they had any reason to pay taxes. And yet, if they want to have more security, if they want to have health and, and education, they need to pay taxes. And of course, the problem is you don't benefit immediately from that once you've gone down the, the rabbit hole of letting your social infrastructure. Um, fall apart. Well, well if, if like me, you, you genuinely believe that a, a big part of your job is to make sure that you leave um, uh, the country and the society that you're in better off for those who follow in your footsteps, um, then you need to be making the investments necessary to do that. And that means collecting taxes. That means 
um, you know, making investing in schools and hospitals. Um, earlier this year, I was in the US. I was uh, I was studying um, in Boston, um, and um, I travelled around Massachusetts. And some of the um, areas of Massachusetts I was in um, didn't have sidewalks. There was no pavement. And I asked my American friends, why was this the case? And they said it's because the municipal authorities there weren't didn't want to collect tax to put sidewalks in because who benefits from that? Because it's just dead money. And if they don't collect the tax, they don't have to do that. So in New Zealand, we want to have um, schools, hospitals. We want to have a good police force. We want to have a good society. And that, that means collecting tax. You know, and and we need to do we need to do that better now. As you said, the political parties, um, you know, um, have have put up um, tax reforms. Um, you know, um, ACT has put up major tax um, reforms, which are um, which would be highly um, regressive and and would cut a lot of um, public services. Um, the National Party has put a, um, a a tax reform proposal up. Um, uh, which uh, you know would would pay Christopher Luxon somewhere in the order of ten times more than somebody on the minimum wage in terms of the paybacks on that. Now that's that's fine. That's a choice they can choose um, to do that. Um, the the Green Party has put up um, recently its proposals um, on taxation reform. So there are plenty of options um, out there. Um, I don't think it's fair to say that all the, the major parties haven't put tax policies up, but whether or not they've addressed the fundamental question of are we are, are any of them collecting anywhere near enough revenue to deliver the services that we want that's a, that I don't think we've yet achieved that goal should governments have a common good as a top priority sorry Marvin I missed you there should governments have a as a top priority the common good of the of the people and of nature because I think nature the, the world we live in, that mm. we hope to remain livable, um, is part of the common good. Is that should that be a top priority of governments? Well, certainly one of the things that we should be doing is rather than just concentrating on economic growth, rather than just concentrating on generating more wealth, we should be looking at well-being because we can generate more wealth. And um, but if all of that wealth goes to one individual, that doesn't benefit everyone. It just means you've got one person who's more wealthy. Um, and so you need to be looking at how are we delivering on our well-being and, and great examples of that are ones that you cited in terms of how are we making sure we're delivering um, a good environment for everyone. How do we make sure we're delivering a great education, including early childhood education for everyone? How do we make sure we're delivering you know, great health services for everyone? Because um, somebody getting um, a hip or a knee operation, um, you know, doesn't it, it doesn't it doesn't doesn't make me poorer. Um, and I benefit from them no longer being in pain. So it's about, you know, it's about looking at how are we maximizing our well-being and what are the indicators that are showing us that we're delivering on our well-being. And that to me is, you know, what, what the goal of a good economy is supposed to be. A good economy is a tool to deliver well-being, not, a, not, not an end in of itself. Would Sometimes I feel like the parties consider staying in Parliament as the greatest end. Um, pol pol politics is a messy business, Marvin, as I'm, as I'm sure you're aware. And you know, um, and there's nothing worse than opposition. 
Um, trust me, as somebody who spent two years working in, in opposition, there's nothing more impotent or frustrating than than being able to then having answers to problems and not being able to implement them. So by definition, um, you know, um, all political parties want to be in power because otherwise they are they are they, they are debating clubs rather than actual um, instruments of, of, of effective action. What happens if you decide the only way to stay in power is, is not sh- rock the boat, not make any changes, or very few changes, and not offending anybody that's important. Well, I, I, I don't think, I actually think that's the fastest way to being out of power. Um, if, you're, if, if you look around the, the world and you look at those political parties that do nothing um, and don't rock the boat and don't deliver um, on their promises, actually they're the ones who get out of office pretty quickly. Um, the challenge, as you've rightly highlighted, Marvin, is actually about taking the public with you, and that's a job of leadership. Um, and you know, and so you've got to, you know, it's up to politicians to demonstrate leadership in in that space, um, and to demonstrate the need for change. And the need the need for change in New Zealand is pretty is pretty clear. It's pretty stark. You don't need to go very far. Um, you know, um, in Dunedin, um, you can walk around Dunedin city centre, or you can walk around the housing in Dunedin and demonstrate very quickly the need for leadership in housing, in poverty, in investment in the public realm. Um, so, you know, that's the job that we should hold our politicians accountable for. What kind of tax changes in the tax, what kind of changes in the tax system would you bring in if you were, if you had a free hand? Oh, crikey. Um, uh, I'm not sure New Zealand's ready for the dictatorship of me. But in- <laughs> I know. I'm just. Wh- what taxes would be good for the country and good for most New Zealanders, especially those that have been on the bottom for so long? Yeah. So, so first of all, um, we need to plug the gaps that exist in the New Zealand taxation system. So we need desperately to look at uh, and how we use the taxation system in capital. Um, uh, um, and and else in, in other areas where we don't currently have taxation um, levers. Secondly, we need to be making sure that everyone's paying their fair share. That we have a taxation system that's genuinely progressive, um, and you know, and, and and not only is genuinely progressive, but seen to be genuinely progressive. Thirdly, we need to be making sure that taxation that the taxation system contributes to our overall political goals and so therefore and, and policy goals so therefore we need a taxation system that encourages the reduction in consumption of the things that we think are bad and um, like pollution and um, like uh, uh, nitrate um, in water and um, like tobacco um, and we make sure that we're encouraging the uptake of things that we consider to be good like renewable energy like electronic vehicles um, and so that's the kind of tax changes I think we want to see is how we're we making sure that a we're making sure that everyone is taxed equally and fairly, and not only that, but our taxation system helps to deliver the outcomes that we want to see, rather than works against it, um, which is often the case in New Zealand. Do you think in New Zealand and other English democracies that the elites some of the- have to undo influence over the direction of government. 
and not only by lobbying, but their very position of holding lots of power and wealth. Um, um, you know, um, people campaign. Um, you know, workers shout, money whispers, um, and because it doesn't need to talk loudly. Um, uh, if you're if you hold large amounts of wealth, um, and you have the power over the choice of whether or not a company is invested in or not, or whether or not individuals will be in work or not. By definition, you have political power. Um, uh, if if you happen to have ownership of, uh, you know, of of broadcasting systems, if you happen to have ownership of, uh, you know, of of clubs or memberships of other things, then by definition, you've got political power. Those with large amounts of resources tend to accumulate those items. And so, you know, do I think it's worse in New Zealand than elsewhere? I actually don't. Um, I've lived in countries like like the UK with a much greater level of class distinction, with a much greater level um, of wealth um, disparity. Um, and as a consequence, you know, with, with, uh, you know with, with much more of the bads that you're talking about here in terms of, you know, do, do our economic needs have, have more influence? I actually think New Zealand's a relatively um, open country. We're not as open as we like, or, or as level as we like to think that we are. Um, but we're certainly not as 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 bad um, as you know uh, as, as the UK, and 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 I don't need to explain to you, Marvin. You know the situation in the US um, is those with it, it follows the golden rule, and the golden rule is really simple: he who's got the gold makes the rules, um, and that's certainly what the situation seems to be in the US, where you have political parties essentially financed by very high net wealth individuals. Okay. Do you think the government needs a separate or parallel source of economic advice to that from Treasury? Treasuries tended to be very um, orthodox, let's put it that way, when they, they give advice. Um, uh, I should declare an interest here, Marvin. I used to be a Treasury official. Um, back in the day, um, and so I can tell you that the you know the, the the treasury does a great job of advising ministers. Now, but you're not wrong. It is you know it, it, it is of our mind, of our view, and ministers also receive um, economic advice from the Ministry of Business, Innovation, and Employment. It also receives advice from the Reserve Bank. Um, they also have advice from you know people like me inside the Beehive. Who tell them what they think as well. So ministers aren't short of advice. Um, what I would say, um, ministers um, would help um, ministers um, is to uh, is in this is something we see elsewhere in the world um, is a is a, is an is an is an office of budget responsibility or a, an independent fiscal institution. Um, the, uh, uh, the 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 congressional budget office is an example in the U.S. Um, uh, where um, uh, um, independent third-party organisations can come along and say, actually, well, the advice that you're receiving from Treasury is only one way in which this could be achieved or is likely or unlikely to achieve your overall goals. And again, the example from the US is you have the Council of Economic Advisors um, in the US. Um, whether or not that leads to better economic policy making, I'll leave that to others to judge. Um, but Ministers um, 
aren't short of advice. What they are short of at times is high quality advice, um, which is linked to what their goals are. And that's always a real challenge. Could you talk about the tax reforms that the Green Party wishes to introduce in some detail? So um, one of the things that the Green, so the Green Party's, you know, talked about a few things um, and it's latest tax proposals. Um, and it's really interesting um, because they've taken that tax switch proposal really to heart. Um, and so they've proposed a set of taxation changes that would reduce the level of taxation paid by anyone who earns somewhere in the order of less than $150,000, but increase it quite significantly um, for those who earn more um, than that. In particular, they've brought forward um, a wealth tax um, uh, on those who earn, for individuals who, who, who have more than $2 million in net taxation or for households of more than um, $3.5 million um, in, in, in net uh, um, asset wealth. They, they would use that to deliver a minimum income guarantee um, in New Zealand, which would mean that you, there, there's a, a level of income that you wouldn't fall below, um, regardless of your economic circumstances. Um, and they would also use it to move the, the incidence of tax around so that those on the very lowest incomes um, pay less tax. And um, it's a really interesting idea, um, and it's a really exciting set of proposals. Um, the key challenge, of course, is in its is in as, as ever is in its implemented implement ability. So, to what extent you could make those changes very quickly and get the kinds of results that you're after, um, and two, whether or not you would simply see uh, um, uh, um, greater levels of tax avoidance, greater levels uh, uh, of tax planning to reduce the level of tax that's being paid by those very high net wealth individuals. Because if you can, if you've got a lot of income, or you've got a lot of wealth, you can afford to employ an accountant to make your tax problems go away. And so, a big part of the challenge in what appears to be a, a quite a radical and, and, and quite interesting set of taxation challenges or, or, or policies, sorry, is the challenge of actually then delivering that and on the ground. But if you could get through that, it would certainly deliver. Um, uh, a better level or, or, or a better balance of taxation. Do you think um, a government could deliver that if they were had the will to and they also had the votes? Um, government can deliver any sort of taxation system that it wants, without wishing to give you a clear answer, Marvin. Um, government can deliver any sort of taxation system that it wants to. But um, can we make that switch if we really want to? Uh, we could. And the question would be, we, I mean, Ireland Revenue Services is not corrupt, I don't believe, and I think it can be fairly effective. Well, if you look at a wealth tax, um, for example, um, you could do that. The challenge is working out what what is wealth. Um, so, um, uh, you know, um, Elizabeth Warren in the US has a fantastic proposal um, in this space. Um, she she would she has a she had a wealth tax proposal um uh when she ran for um the democratic nomination um which said i will get everyone who um the irs notifies as being a high net wealth individual to detail all of their wealth and they will say what each item is worth so if you say on the wall you've got a matisse on the wall and you tell me it's a portrait and it's only worth $15,000 
that's the price the government can buy it for. And so that then becomes a really easy way of working out the true value of an item. Now, the challenge then is, of course, you've got to, 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 to get the money out of that Matisse. You have to liquidate that Matisse. You have to sell it. And of course, if you don't sell it, you're asking people who might have lots of assets but no income to pay tax on something where they don't have the income to pay. And so you get into a very technical set of arguments uh, and quite challenging set of arguments about the about the ability to actually do what seems like a really good idea on in, on the surface. But if we assume we can't do it, we won't. No, absolutely. And if and if our starting point is that you know the taxation system is correct, then we we shouldn't start with that point because our taxation system isn't right. And as I outlined earlier, there are plenty of areas in which we could be exploring greater equity in our taxation system so that actually those on low and moderate incomes pay less um, whereas those who have the greater ability to pay pay a little bit more the, we in the 19 late 80s and 90s we privatized or semi-privatized a lot of government uh, infrastructure we got st- standalone SOEs in uh, power generation, uh, Kiwi Rail, and other, and public buses. We got rid of public buses, actually. How has that worked out, and has that benefited the, the great majority of people? Has it, has it uh, cut the amount of money we pay for power as households? Has it made public transportation for instance, passenger rail or even public buses, that much better? Well, I think, you know, the, 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 the evidence speaks for itself. Um, you know, um, you know, if public transport is a great example of where you've got reduced levels of service, it more expensive, and it doesn't go, and, 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 and you know, the, the, the profit goes to large firms rather than being reinvested in the service. Wherever you have... Uh, in, in New Zealand, some of our um, uh, uh, public transport systems um, and our provision is owned by American um, hedge funds. They, they're not providing public transport because they're a charitable service. They're providing public transport because they see it as a very um, lucrative source of income. The um, way I see it, when they they have to um, try to get a contract from a local authority, and if they want the contract... They have to offer to do it cheaply. And once they offer to do it cheaply, then they still want to pay their um, stakeholders lots of money. So what, yeah. so what happens is... The, the well, what happens there, and that's a great example, Marvin, of why we need fair pay agreement legislation. Because driving a bus, yeah, the bus is the same, the wheels are the same, the petrol that goes into the bus is the same, the route is set by the local authority. But... The only thing you can do is squeeze the driver's wage. And so over time, we've seen the driver's wages being squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And so to the point where we can't get bus drivers anymore because it's nobody wants to do the job. Um, and so fair pay agreements come in for bus drivers and they say, no, you can no longer squeeze the driver's wage. You've got to compete on some other mechanism 
rather than just creating profit by squeezing the workers' wages. And so, you know, and we've seen lots of examples of that, but uh, I would also point you to a report produced by the CTU um, and First Union called Generating Scarcity, where over the past few years, we've seen excess dividend distribution um, in the electricity generation sector, where electricity firms have made quite significant amounts of, uh, of, of dividends well in excess of their profits. And they're doing that because they're essentially just running down their services. And rather than, and we've seen the level of generation in New Zealand, i.e. the total amount that we can generate as a country of electricity, remain the same for around 10 years. Despite the fact we've had a growing population during that period of time. What does that lead to? It leads to more expensive electricity and it leads to more carbon. And so there are lots of examples of where that privatization has led to better outcomes if you're a shareholder, better, more profitable firms, but not necessarily great well-being outcomes if you're a New Zealander or if you're not a shareholder in that area. I know that, for instance, the Wellington Regional Council and the City Council said at one point very recently they'd really like to uh, own the bus system as a, a regional and city works, but they're not allowed to under the present legal system. Well, under the current system, they, they, they contract out. Yeah, that's they're, what I mean. They're forced to contract out. Yeah. And, you know, and so the, the challenge there is, you know, and is how do we create a level playing field? But also, when we're contracting out, how are we making sure that we're buying the things that we actually want? But is it really the best thing for New Zealand to have all firms have to make a profit for the government if they're, if they're still part of the government? And otherwise... And to privatize them to overseas firms. Is that the best way for, for New Zealand? Well, one of the things we do whenever we're delivering a government service, be that public or private or, or whatever, is what is the thing that you actually want from the provision of that service and putting it into the contract? Because um, if you say we're going to exclude one group or another, be that we're, we're only going to use the private sector or we're only going to use the public sector, um, one of the things that you do automatically is you, um, you're excluding a group who may be able to deliver you a, a better service. And so what is it you actually want when you, when you deliver a service? Put it in the contract and make sure that's actually what you deliver because that's the best way of making sure that New Zealand taxpayers are actually getting the outcomes that they want to achieve. Okay, thanks a lot for coming on. Um you know, this program and for having a, a, a hope and educational program that will cause people to think over the next year about how they feel about taxation. I'm delighted to be on Marvin, and if I can be of any help in the future, please do just let me know. Oh, yes, I will do that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.